we need to start implementing on the ground those new opportunities. That's really the only way that we're going to convince local workers, local communities that this is a transition worth taking. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This episode is part of our Just Transition Initiative, or JTI, a partnership of CSIS and the Climate Investment Funds. Today's discussion is hosted by Sandeep Pai. Sandeep is the senior research lead at JTI and the lead author of a recent study on how coal phase-outs in South Africa and India can also be a just transition for those coal-dependent regions. The study focuses on Pumalonga in South Africa and Jakarta in India, regions deeply dependent on their coal sector for jobs, local services, social spending, and revenue. In this episode, we explore how these provinces in India and South Africa can diversify their economies away from coal in ways that are just, equitable, and sustainable. Very pleased to have with us today, Gaylor Montmasson Clare. Gaylor is a senior economist at the Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies, where he leads work on sustainable growth. And we welcome back to the show, Sarestra Banjari. She is program lead for climate justice and natural resource management at iForest. Here's Sandeep to lead this important discussion. Thank you, Gela and Shrestha, for joining the Energy 360 podcast. We're really excited to talk to you about this. So let's get started. In the first question, I want to explore just transition in coal-dependent emerging economies. And so let's start with Gela. You have extensively researched and interacted with different stakeholders on just transition in South Africa and in Pumalanga. What are some of the key priorities of just transition in an emerging economy like South Africa? Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, look, of course, the first priority effectively is to truly embark on a climate compatible pathway. And by that, I would kind of say, you know, let's stop the damage. And and I think that's quite important, you know, uh, particularly in in the context of, of a global South economy, you know, where we still see quite a strong past dependency and, and willingness and desire to, to invest in coal, invest in gas uh, and, uh, you know, and, and fossil fuel overall. So for me, that's kind of the first priority. We need to break that past dependency is, is, is fundamental. And then really when we embark on that transition process and, and truly a, a just transition process, the critical point is that you try and achieve the three dimensions of transitional justice. First and foremost, of course, it's distributive justice. So it's about dealing with you know, the direct loss of jobs, the direct loss of livelihood that are going to, to result from just a sector phasing out or restructuring, and that's going to impact workers and communities directly. And that's really the first priority in the short term. Linked to that is participatory justice. So it's making sure that the process is inclusive. You know, it's bottom up, it's not just a top-down process. And last, but, but certainly not least, is restorative justice. You know, it's how can we right historical wrongs? You know, how can we kind of use a transition to redress some of the past inequalities when it comes to energy access, ownership, access to equal opportunities, you know, right to a better and healthy environment and so forth. So for me, these are kind of the priorities really in structuring a just transition in, in the South African context. Excellent. Yeah, that's a that's a great summary of, you know, what are the 
different principles one has to think about with regards to just transition shreshta if i have to ask you the same question what are the priorities of just transition you know uh, on the ground in india and in jharkhand uh so sandeep just to add you know gailer has outlined the basic fundamentals of the theoretical underpinnings as i would say the just transition will need and those remain i think those are very universal that is required what i would like to say two more things to that which are i think in terms more important in terms of implementation and one of the two things i would say the first one is i feel that even before we have a just transition process set which essentially means closing down coal mines or closing down coal based power plants and so on and so forth having the law in place having the policy in place even before that we need to start diversifying the economies of these regions and starting investing in social infrastructure and why i say this because most of the fossil fuel regions and particularly when we tell fossil fuel in india largely it will be coal as of now many of these are poor and deprived areas and and the second thing is these are mono industry districts many of them in the coal heart belt right there is the coal mining there is the coal based power and any other industry you largely see in these regions are coal dependent now the problem that is that unless we have an alternative set ruling in this regions the challenge will be even to convince people that something of this is coming or can happen there will be huge resistance because you know development interventions have been promised have happened but nothing actually has happened largely so unless they see that there is something there is an alternative in front of their eyes or there is a good school there which is not so based on a coal company or a power company then they feel that okay there can be a system where you know this can go but i will have something to live on so i feel this is fundamental even before we start closing coal mines or coal based power in this regions and that will help to bring in the community confidence as well as help in the entire stakeholder engagement or inclusive process that we are talking about because otherwise there will be a lot of antagonism there everyone will try to have their bit and you know there will be difficult situations on ground that's great yeah i i'm glad you touched about the implementation challenges and you know the developmental aspects of this issue so so let's jump into the topic which you just touched about shreshta which is economic diversification right you know uh, one of the key pillars of just transition is to diversify some of these regions so recently we published a report called understanding just transition in coal dependent communities case studies from pumalanga uh, and jharkhand and in our research what we find that you know there are many drivers of different sectors that these places can diversify into so for example you know like they can there is potential to diversify into tourism renewable energy agriculture etc but these regions obviously face many challenges to move beyond like what you described as the mono industry uh, so first of all can you explain for our audience what are some of the key challenges associated with the diversification process can you also explain pathways to overcome such challenges so let's start with gelor again and maybe you can focus on pumalanga 
Yes, of course. And I think it, you know, it resonates so much, the situation in, in India, as we are talking about the situation in Mpumalanga, really. There are really a number of challenges when we're talking about transitioning to a new economy and diversifying, really, the, the regional economy in Mpumalanga. The first thing really is to have those new opportunities on the ground. You know, of course, you know, we need to implement. It's logical when one is talking to a coal miner and you know, telling them, well, you know, this job is going to be phased out, that they're going to be defensive if there are no new opportunities on the ground for them. You know? uh, and we're not talking about any job. It has to be at least the same kind of job in terms of pay levels, social security, and so forth. And of course, mining jobs tend to pay better than other jobs in South Africa. You know, they actually, for relatively low level of skills, pay relatively well. But those alternative jobs do not exist, you know. So we're asking miners to give up their livelihood for some hypothetical job in the future. Anyone would be defensive about it. That, that makes, you know, that makes perfect sense. So the first challenge is to create those jobs. And it's really fundamental because in the case of Mpumalanga, in the case of South Africa, of course, you deal with mono-economy towns. You deal with you know, economies that are entirely reliant on coal. You know, and it's very concentrated. You, know, you have to understand that the bulk of South Africa's coal economy is in two municipalities. You know, it's extremely concentrated. So those municipalities rely entirely on coal effectively. Of course, adding to that you know, high levels of poverty, high levels of unemployment and inequality. We're not even just talking about a transition that is trying to keep the situation unchanged. You're trying to improve the situation quite dramatically when it comes to employment, inequality and, and, and poverty. Of course, another challenge is, is also that certainly at the municipal level, there's a huge lack of resources. You know, municipalities in South Africa and certainly in the coal fields are very weak. When it comes to you know, human and financial resources, there's really a, a need for some strong support, particularly to address the legacy damages and the lack of services that is available in those, in those municipalities. So you do have quite a lot of, of, of challenges at play. But at the same time, I would switch this around. You know, there actually are quite a lot of assets that can be leveraged because I would say, A, we know what the problem is, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing, you know, we know who needs to be supported, we know where it is. You do have in the Mpumalanga region, young and dynamic population, good levels of skills, amazing infrastructure. Of course, the grid, the electricity uh, infrastructure is there. Uh, but beyond that, the roads, the rail, there's water, there's broadband, you know, because it's infrastructure that has been put together for the power plants and the mines. So it's all there, you know. Great climate for renewable energy, um, but also agriculture, amazing land. You know, and Pumalanga has about 50% of South Africa's best arable land. It's not directly in the coal fields, of course, but it's around it. And I think there's an ability to turn the current liabilities, those coal mines, those closing power plants, into assets as we repurpose them, restructure them, do the mining rehabilitation, and, and, and so forth. So for me, yes, it's a difficult situation, of course, you know, we know it. But there is an ability to turn this into an asset and explore all those opportunities that, that you've mentioned, you know, 
renewable energy, agriculture, tourism, manufacturing of many kinds, steel, batteries, uh, capital equipment, are all potential opportunities in, in Mpumalanga, leveraging the existing industrial structure in, in the province, effectively. Excellent. Yeah, uh, that, that gives some hope. So, Shreshta, let's switch to you. The same question, uh, you know, what are the challenges for diversifying away from coal economy for a state like Jharkhand or for any other coal-dependent state in India? And can you also explain pathways to overcome such challenges? I would actually differentiate a little bit between uh, states like Jharkhand and maybe some other states, for example, if I say take a state like Tamil Nadu or uh, Maharashtra, which are also coal and power, not so heavily dependent like Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, Orissa and the India's heartbelt. Now, there are fundamental challenges in this regions for economic diversification. <clears throat> One of the big challenges is how do you go about land? And land is an important issue. It's going to play out, in fact, because, you know, in coal regions, land acquisition has been one of the biggest reasons of community alienation. Now, the question is that during the process of setting up a new economy, if we have to go by further land acquisition, we need to understand how that will play out. And... In many of, and here I was trying to differentiate between maybe Jharkhand and a state like Maharashtra, because Jharkhand, there are many areas which are governed by tribal land laws, tenancy issues. Same thing in Chhattisgarh, one of the biggest districts in Chhattisgarh right now we are working on is Koba. It is an entirely scheduled district. Basically, that means that there are tribal and indigenous population and their rights on land are very specifically defined and how, what can be taken and what can be. And, in, and tip, what essentially in very simple terms, what this means for you know, new industries is that land transfer is not so easy in these regions. So now if I know, need new land for investments, that is going to be a challenge. And maybe I can just touch on the opportunity here. What Gaylor also emphasized is that there lies a huge opportunity, therefore, in redeveloping and repurposing the existing coal mining and coal-based power plant. And if I do an overall estimation of India, it is about 0.45 million hectares of land that can be available potentially from coal mining, coal-based power, steel and cement industry. And if I just take coal mining and coal-based power alone, it is about 0.45 3 million hectares in India. And some of the districts, it's about, you know, 10% of the total geographical area, 15% of the total geographical area, if it's very small district. Now, so this is the opportunity that we need to think, but this is also the barrier. So we really need to think of the land issue. Where do we put up these industries? The second thing will be, the challenge will be infrastructure. Because in many of these regions, the infrastructure is very, very poor. And there have been studies on industry attractiveness to invest in these regions. And if you see categorically, the states, particularly the old coal regions, Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, Orissa, they fare very poorly. It is for a host of reasons. It uh, For, you know, what we call ease of doing business, basically in terms of getting clearances, social stability, infrastructure, how the police is functioning, and all these issues are there, how easy it is to get, acquire land. But the basic understanding is that these are not very investment-friendly regions. 
So to build the investor's confidence, the infrastructure and mechanisms have to be put in place. And again, if I tie my response, how can we fix that? One of the biggest opportunities right now to do is invest through public funds in infrastructure building. And then that will be a way for you to attract private investments because we all know that the entire economic diversification or any industrial restructuring that we need for these regions cannot happen through public funds. We'll need private investments. But for private investments to come in, we need that infrastructure and people's confidence to invest in those regions. So that is something that needs to be taken care of. The third biggest challenge also can be in terms of, and this is one of the big talks right now is going on even at the COP, that you know everyone is talking about we need so many billions of dollars for diversification, investment, just transition. That is very, very true. We need huge amount of finances. But the question is, we also need the capacity to use those money. And if you do not have the plan and resources, capacity in terms of, I mean, human resources, in fact, also to use that money, then it is not going to work how much money you are pumping in. And if I take very, very small, you know, examples of development interventions that has happened in these regions and we have been working, in fact, one of the biggest things with respect to District Mineral Foundation Fund, which is a very place-based investment. Money is not being used today for the very basic reason because districts do not have the capacity to plan and invest. So unless we build that capacity locally and regionally to invest that fund, plan, monitor, then it is going to be, can be a wastage. And if, if the fear is that I feel if there is a wastage, then it will take away the confidence in investment. So we need to think of these kinds of things as actually the barriers. There are opportunities. These are very, very easily fixable things. But the point is we need to be wary of this before we talk of, you know, how can we go about it. That's great. Thank you both for, you know, really laying out the challenges and opportunity. Now, next, I want to get into the role of some key actors here, right? Uh, governments, private sector and coal companies. So let's start with Shreshta again this time. Uh, in India, you know, there are governments, private companies and state-owned companies like Coal India. Are they actively trying to diversify away from coal-based businesses in state in these states? Uh, and how can they these actors play a more ambitious role? If they are trying to diversify, then do you think they can play a more ambitious role in facilitating the diversification process, which which has a focus on just transition? Right. Uh, so, Sandeep, the thing that we have been, you know, we all are witnessing is that first is that there is an appetite for say Coal India Limited, the biggest uh, coal producer, or NTPC, which is the biggest power generator, all the public sector. There is a huge appetite now, right now, for them clearly to diversify their own portfolio. Like, for example, Coal India Limited has announced about 1.8 billion, in fact, US dollar to invest in solar, right? By uh, 2024. In April this year, they have announced like establishment of two wholly owned subsidiaries to manufacture solar PVs as well as to invest in RD projects. Same announcements are coming from NTPC. Even for that matter, private sectors who are being active in this area, such as you see Reliance, you see Adani, 
they are also diversifying their investments in renewable energy. So the industry itself is ripe. They know that diversification is important. But the question is whether that diversification is helping in the coal regions. Now, if we look at where these investments are happening, there is a disjoint between the two. The investments are all happening through any of them in the southern and western regions of India. There are a few states which have a little overlap, like there is some overlap in Maharashtra, there is some overlap in Madhya Pradesh. But if I look today at the biggest renewable energy investments and diversification where it is happening of the portfolio of these companies and where the coal mining regions are, the main heart belt is left out. Now, so I feel that this needs to be recognized and there can be ways of doing it. You know, today we are talking of if we look at the 2030 target target, the PM has now announced, which essentially will mean that we need a huge manufacturing need of battery storage, which Niti Aayog is also talking of, right? We'll need huge manufacturing of many other things. Now, those kinds of investments can happen in these regions and the companies can play an active role. So I would say yes. There are huge opportunities, but the investments currently that are happening has a different geography. So that is um, my biggest question. But definitely they will play a role because, you know, this, uh, they are there. And in fact, there has been discussions around. I, I don't want to be an advocate for it. But the question is that can Coal India Limited tomorrow uh, start investing in iron ore mining, for example, which oftentimes is in the same state. Right, because you will need that for infrastructure development. That has its own set of issues. But I'm saying even in some other mining, if this company is diversified, which can be one of the easiest way for them to move because skill sets are very similar. So that can be another way of creating opportunities. So I'm very cautious that I do not want to advocate for that. But yes, that can be something that can be thought of too. Could you also talk a little bit about the role of governments? Are they actively trying to diversify and if they are? So uh, governments so far, there is, um, you know, this is very regional uh, for uh, how governments are going about the diversification. And I can only comment at the governments I have looked closely into their uh, industrial diversification policies. For example, Jharkhand or Chhattisgarh. Or some, in some way, I'm like right now looking at Orissa as well. Now, if I see these governments are, are trying to diversify their economy, which is mostly around, in fact, the primary sector, which is a lot based on agriculture, forestry, and all that resources. Now, this is something we also need to be careful about, <clears throat> not taking this as a general trend. Because the current government in Jharkhand and the current government in Chhattisgarh, the CMs have a very you know, their personal tie to these kinds of priorities. So I would not say that if the political landscape changes, the same priorities will remain. No, that was not the case of the earlier economic diversification plan Jharkhand had. The earlier CM had very different priorities. So, but the currently the situation is, yes, there is a recognition that the primary sectors such as agriculture or forest-based resources are untapped and they have to be tapped. In fact, Chhattisgarh is going in a lot of promoting RE investments, IT investments, things like that. But that will require a very different kind of skill sets than the kind of uh, skill sets, you know, people in the school regions have. 
So uh, that will require a lot of upskilling, but yes, governments are doing it in their own ways, but it is very state specific. Uh, thank you, Shreshta. Uh, so next, uh, let's switch to Gelor and talk about Pumalanga. And, you know, we know that ESCOM is trying to repurpose and uh, repower their power plants. Uh, and Pumalanga has, government has the green cluster policy. But can they play a more ambitious role in, you know, facilitating a just transition? Mm. I, I, I think so, yes. I mean, you know, coming out of government in, in South Africa, we have very mixed messages. And I think that's quite important to, to reckon with that fact that there is no consensus in terms of the way forward. As you mentioned, you know, ESCOM over the last few years has done a 180 degree turnaround, really looking you know, at transitioning and, and you know, made some really important announcement in the repurposing uh, of, of their facilities, you know, even looking at turning uh, the Komati power station into uh, a manufacturing facility for mini grids, for instance, you know, um, and then of course, looking at other opportunities as well. You mentioned, I think at the, at the regional level, the Mpumalanga Green Cluster Agency that's looking to, to diversify the economy. Uh, and that's also quite a, a really important opportunity that's being explored. At national level, there's still some di- dichotomy. Some players pushing for a persistence of the coal economy, and if not coal, then you know fossil fuels. Whereas, of course, other corners uh, are, are really looking at the transition more more seriously. And I think that's where we be sending mixed signals domestically, but also problematically, we're sending mixed signals internationally. And, and that's, of course, a problem because on with the one end, we're saying, no, no, we are serious about this. We're going to decarbonize. We want to achieve a just transition. But then when the other, we are saying, well, you know, the only way to achieve a just transition is to, is to basically go slow about it, you know, and, and keep coal and keep fossil fuel. And, and I think that's, that's a big problem that we have to, to deal with in the South African context. And, and I think we have to recon with that. We're also getting quite mixed messages from the private sector you know, in the country. You know. Yes, if you look at the five leading companies, coal mining companies in the country, you know, that control about 80% of, of local mining, they've all made some sort of commitment. You know. Some have, have put caps on their coal investments. Uh, that's the case of Exaro, that's the case of Glencore, that's even the case of Cecil. And then the other two, Anglo-American and, and SARS-32, have basically been selling their assets. But let's look at that as well. They're selling the assets to to much smaller groups, local groups, yes, South African-owned groups, but will they have the ability to address the liabilities, to rehabilitate, to actually ensure just transition going forward uh, is is a, a question that remains to be answered. So, you know, we are seeing some really positive dynamics at every level. But there's certainly no consensus in the South African context about the way, the way to go, about how to diversify towards what should we uh, diversify. You know, we're having a very, sometimes I felt very narrow thinking about diversification in Mpumalanga. Most people talk about, oh, we need to move from coal to renewable energy. And for me, that's a very narrow thinking. Our energy system, our electricity system needs to move from coal to renewable energy, but the regional economy doesn't have to, you know. Renewable energy will be a component of that, of course, and we should maximize that component, but it's only a component, you know. 
And, and I think there is a bit of a, of a narrow thinking from many players, sometimes by design, to try and limit the transition. And you know, I think that's where we can be a lot more ambitious, really, in, in, in really providing that forward-looking vision for Mpumalanga as a province, for Steve Truete and Emelashleni as municipalities, for tomorrow. You know? and, and I think that's where government, private sector, but of course also you know, workers in the labor movement and civil society can, can play a much, much stronger role going forward. I have a quick follow-up, Gaylord. Uh, you know, isn't that what green cluster entity is trying to do to bring together and create this larger industrial policies? If that is correct, could you speak like briefly about, you know, uh, what that cluster entity is facing a challenge? I, I ask this because something similar might happen in India going forward. So it'd be a very good lesson for, you know, other emerging economies as well. Yes, so the, the Mpumalanga Green, Green Cluster Agency, which is being set up by you know, the provincial government of Mpumalanga, it's in the name, you know, it's trying to promote a green economy. Um, and it's trying to do that by bringing government, the private sector, you know, research and academia, but also the social partners you know, of, of the workers and, and communities together. The challenge first is that Mpumalanga is quite a diversified region. When you're talking about it, we are talking about the coal fields here, but that's one part of Mpumalanga. You know, you've got two municipalities, as I mentioned, that rely on, on coal. That's in the western part of the province. Then you've got the eastern part of the province. That's the famous Kruger National Park, you know, tourist orientated, natural resource management. And you've got the central part, so a lot more around forestry, agriculture, some industrial activities. So there's quite a lot of diversity first in the province already that, that needs to be uh, addressed. Another challenge that I've, I've mentioned, of course, is, is the lack of resources, you know, and I think uh, we, we touched about it in the Indian context as well. How can we implement, you know, when there's a lack of human and financial resources at local level? It's really hard. You know, you can throw money at the problem, but if you have no capacity to implement on the ground, that's not really going to help you very much. And I think it's, it's also difficult to break that past dependency that I was also talking uh, in the introduction about. We have economies that are very dependent on the current model. So it's going to take some time to create the opportunity, to convince of the opportunity, and then more importantly, to show that opportunity on the ground, you know. That's really what we need. We need to start implementing on the ground those new opportunities. That's really the only way that we're going to convince local workers, local communities that this is a, worth, a, a transition worth taking. Otherwise, you know, we are just selling a dream, selling a unicorn, you know, and, and we're not implementing it. So it's really about implementing this on the ground. The cluster is still fledging, it's still being set up. You know, it's going to take some time, but certainly I think we have high ambition about the cluster. It's based on a model of a similar cluster that was established in uh, the Western Cape province of South Africa and uh, around Cape Town and the rest of the province, which has been very successful. Of course, very different context, but the cluster approach has been very successful in South Africa. It has been very successful in other contexts as well, in other countries and can really help catalyze and foster investment in the green economy going forward. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we covered, uh, you know, the, the domestic actors, mainly like 
I mean, some of the domestic actors like state-owned coal companies, uh, private sector, also the state governments. But let's talk a little bit about the international actors, right? There is a lot of talk about just transition, even during the current COP and uh, you know, like uh, generally people are using the term more and more and there's a lot of different agencies that are trying to promote the principles of just transition. So uh, let's start with Shreshta this time. And I was wondering how can the international community uh, support coal dependent states like Jharkhand in diversifying their economy? You know, right now the conversation, the money that is being asked for, I feel is more about at least in Indian terms, I'm just saying, it is more about looking for the energy transition and less about the just transition that is being discussed. Because the quantification on what is the amount required for just transition is not there. Now, the international agencies, I feel, can play a big role because, you know, the Canadian Prime Minister announced that there will be funding available for just transition for uh, developing countries and the funds investment will happen through climate investment funds, right? So definitely we need money. That is no doubt about it. And there can be, for multiple reasons, this money is required. Now, one of the fundamental things that this money can be used for, I feel is important, it is very little discussed, is for redevelopment of this land and because you know the old coal mining regions and particularly we have done a case study of Jharkhand and Jharkhand is a classic case where there are lots of abundant mines. Now this is a huge brownfield area and if we are looking at some of the old power plant regions these in, in the many industries are left just as brownfield. There is no way of ensuring how to take down the structures, how to repurpose that land, how to redevelop that land. We do not have that process very well documented. So I feel, and this, if I only look at the coal mines, the biggest problem we have is who is going to close these mines? It is a huge amount of investment. Till date, public sector or private sector or government, no one has taken charge of it. So I feel if we are talking of, you know, this theoretically, this amount of land will be available for industrial restructuring, then this land needs to be redeveloped in the first place. And we need investments for that. So I feel here is something where the international community can take a big role because I personally know that this is not something which is going to come easy from the government here or the private sector or the public sector. That has not happened in years of history. So, um, so this is where I feel that is important. It can be important in other situations, but there is already, you know, fundings have been there and there are local level resources which the international community can top up on in terms of building, quickly boosting social infrastructure, as I was saying, because that is something which is an immediate need even before we start transitioning. Now, there are many government schemes, programs, localized funds like District Mineral Foundation, that is fine. And those has a huge opportunity too. But, you know, the accelerated pace now we need for this transition, here I think that kind of kickstart will be important. And the other reason I feel, and it is a little uh, sorry state of affairs that we are saying this, but at least having international financing in this kinds of things will have some amount of accountability to accelerate the process. Because public funds get into this dilly-dally mode of being spent. 
So if we really want accelerated process in these areas, maybe there also international financing can help. And then there are, you know, many, many issues that we can, but I'm just putting out the priorities right now, which is less discussed. Thank you. How can the international community support coal-dependent states like Pumalanga in diversifying their economies? Thanks, Andy, for that uh, very topical question. You know, uh, just at, uh, at the COP26, very much a, a landmark deal has been announced uh, for South Africa. You know, uh, 8.5 billion US dollars to be to be provided by by France, Germany, um, the UK, and, and and the US collaboration with the EU to support South Africa's transition. Uh, and a lot of that is expected to be to be directed at Mpumalanga. You know, of course, we don't know yet all the details and the, the devil is in the details of course you know i think international finance is, is tremendously important if it is done the right way of course south africa of course and Pumalanga need the support you know and and i think that has been made over and over as a point but i guess the question i'll ask is you know is it new finance is it additional finance you know is it actually contributing to uh, addressing the global north climate debt and really meaningfully supporting a, a province like Impumalanga. What are the terms and conditions? Are we talking about grants uh, or at least extremely concessional finance? What is being financed? So, you know, what kind of investments are we talking about is really important. You know, we need to rejuvenate, diversify the, the region. We need significant investment into the province and into the rest of the country. Uh, so let's talk about the kind of investments that are going to be supported. You know, what kind of sectors, what kind of facilities, what kind of programs. And of course, who will, who will benefit? You know, what kind of money are we talking about? Is that going to reach the people on the ground? Is that going to create jobs? And that's how we're going to judge if that climate finance is effectively, you know, or that international finance is effectively put to good use, if, if you want. If it is... I think certainly in the case of South Africa and the case of Mpumalanga, there's, I'd say, three plus one pots of money that we need. Why do I say three plus one? The first pot, of course, is climate finance. It's we need significant amount of funding to achieve our climate goals, both from a mitigation perspective and an adaptation perspective. And the bulk of that in South Africa is in Mpumalanga. Yeah. The bulk of our emissions are in Mpumalanga from our power stations, but also from our petrochemical complex uh, in, in Secunda. Adaptation, of course, tremendously important, you know, in many parts of the country, but, but certainly in Mpumalanga when it comes to really adapting to, the, to this climate impact. But I would argue that there's a second pot of money that's required, which is a just transition pot of money, you know, which is quite different, although there is some overlap, it's quite different from just financing climate action. And we need that pot of money to finance the new investment, to finance the social progress interventions, to make sure that really we invest in new economic sectors, new economic activities, uh, that we support local government, that we support you know, the municipalities, the province in, in getting the job done. And that for me is, is really important. And then there's a third pot of money, which is more about supporting the state when it comes to fiscal reform, you know, things like social infrastructure, you know, the social fabric, the social protection that, of course, needs to happen more at a systemic level 
at the national level, but also uh, through the different fields of government. And that needs to be supported in a particular way. Here, you're not talking about investment into a facility or a new plant or, you know, a new farm. No, you're talking about supporting the states and actually developing, you know, and I think that's quite important, certainly in, in the context of, of South Africa and in Pumalanga, given the context that we've highlighted, you know, high levels of poverty, inequality and unemployment. And these are my three main pots of money. But of course, in the context of South Africa and in Pumalanga, we get to three plus one, which is the ESCOM pot of money that is required, the power utility. You know, we have a power utility in South Africa, which is in a state of emergency that's been so for, for quite some time now, and it needs to be refinanced effectively. We could argue that it has little to do with, you know, climate change or just transition, but effectively, if our utility fails, let alone we will not have energy security, you know, we're not going to achieve any of our goals. And so, so I would argue that when it comes to international support, you know, these are really the, the sort of four pots of money that, that are required and four areas where we can see a need for, for international support. The deal that was announced uh, at COP26 is, is an important first step towards that of course will it will be judged on on its implementation on its delivery and i think it does though uh, provide a framework for increased collaboration between south africa and the global south and uh, the countries in the global north thank you both of you for this really fascinating conversation Thanks to Sandeep, Gaylor, and Sarestra for that exploration of the opportunities and challenges for places like India and South Africa as they seek new pathways away from coal. I highly recommend taking a look at our report, Understanding Just Transitions in Coal-Dependent Communities, available on the Just Transition Initiative website. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at csisf.org. As always, follow us on Twitter for more updates at CSIS Energy, and thanks for listening. 